0: Listen up, get ready, I'm not going to take no more. There's a revolution, a revelation going on in my soul. Buckle up,
1: get ready, We're not going to sit back. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Live from the Heartland Show. I'm your host for this edition. I'm Michael James. I'm here in Chicago, and we are recording this on August 9th in the year 2023. It's for the week of August 12th. It will air on WW on both Saturday and Wednesday, nine o'clock and eight o'clock in the morning. And of course, see yeah, how many of you know it's on youtube.com slash slash videos with lots of pictures. And you can get that anytime. It's also on Google and Spotify podcasts. And it is on Can TV. So, the highlight of this week, well, last week I talked about a little bit. I had gone to the Charlie Muscle White Elvin Bishop show up in Ravinia, and it was great. But on this Monday, I went to the White Sox game, playing the Yankees, and I went with three of my favorite people in the world. I went with my wife, Paige, my uh, friend and partner in a lot of things, like the Heartland Cafe, Katie Hogan, and my daughter, Casey Blue, James. And we had a really good time. I confess to eating a couple of Polishes. And we did see the White Sox win 5-3. to It didn't do so well the next night, which was Tuesday. But it's always good to get out to the ballpark and see a lot of people. There were a lot of Yankee fans. We had some conversation. But the White Sox did well. It hasn't been a great year. Cubs are doing well. And, of course, there's a lot of hype about the Bears. On the women's soccer front, the U.S. is out. Trump made some comment about this is what makes America bad or something. Uh, You know, I just don't understand where that guy's from, although he's in deep doo-doo these days. And I think we should all relish that and be aware of it and follow it. On the union front, my union, the Screen Actors Guild, is still on strike, as are the Writers Guild. There are a lot of others around the country. Starbucks just had a, a campaign. And protesters gathered in New York and around the country over the last few days here in Chicago, too. And they call it a day of action. It's part of a push to spread the word that employees who are looking to unionize are getting pushback from the company. And there's some nasty stuff going on from the owner of Starbucks, so you all pay attention to that. Workers at Starbucks are asking for better pay, better benefits, and more consistent hours. Okay, and a little follow-up on the possible Teamster strike and negotiations and settlement with UPS. I had mentioned last week that there was some question whether the part-time workers were getting a fair deal or the benefits out of this uh, much-heralded contract. I don't know the current situation. What I have here today is Teamster locals representing 340000 Full-time and part-time workers at UPS voted 161 to 1 on Monday to endorse the tentative agreement reached with the delivery giant on July 25th. They recommend this passage by the full membership of the 176 local unions with UPS members. 14 affiliates failed to show up to the meeting in D.C. to review the tentative agreement. We'll keep you posted on that. And I'm working on getting someone from the Starbucks campaign to actually come on the show. So stay tuned for that. If anyone's looking for a job out there, CPS is still looking for bus drivers. We have a shortage of bus drivers here in Chicago and I believe around the country. I'd like to share that in, back in 1964, when I was working on my senior thesis at Lake Forest College, I had a bus driving job and I would go out to Half Day Road and I would pick up a bus and i drive up to Mundelein, Mundelein High School, I think. I'd go up by the Wisconsin border, and I had a public school and a private school, and I'd come home and work on my thesis, and then I'd go back and pick them all up and drop them all off again. It was a lot of fun. And uh, so if someone's looking for a job, you may want to consider driving a school bus for the CPS. Um, let me see, what else do I have? Last week, we had uh, an old friend, Lincoln Bergman, and a friend of his named Claude Marx, and they are with the Freedom Archives yeah. out in California. And they've got all kind of stuff on the Freedom Archives that you might want to check out. You will find them if you look. And we did get a report on the 70th anniversary of the Cuban attack on Moncada Barracks that kind of kicked off the Cuban revolution, which we still root for. I also uh, last week had my uh, my cousin, and former football player at Northwestern, Adam James, on. And he filled us in on what was going on, not only with the Northwestern uh, hazing incident and scandal, but also on what was going on with the Screen Actors Guild. And we'll get a little bit more of that. I think I'm going to leave it at that for the little bit of banter at the opening. And we will uh, be right back after uh, Hal, uh, our engineer, plays a little music. And we'll come back with Brian Meir, who is down in Brazil. And he has the cover story this past week in the reader about what Brandon Johnson can learn from Harold Washington. And Brian's dad, Rob Muir, worked for the Harold Washington administration. So we're looking forward to talking to Brian uh, in a few minutes, not only about Harold Washington and his legacy, but also maybe a little news about what's going on in South America. Stay tuned, we'll be right back with more Live from the Heartland. and welcome back to live from the heartland and we're going all the way to brazil now uh regular listeners to the show know that we've been counting on our friend brian Meir, who lives down in brazil works for telesur he's a reporter to come on the show fill us in on the uh, brazilian elections what's going on with lula and i came upon the reader i don't see it all the time but it's a great chicago paper been around for many many years and the cover story last week was uh, by Brian Meir, and it was called Lessons from Harold and Rob. And uh, Brian's dad is Rob Meir, uh, the late, great Rob Meir, and I knew him. He was a wonderful guy. He did a lot of great work for the Chicago, and he was real close to Harold Washington. So good morning to you. So tell us a little bit about how this article came to be.
0: I. I haven't been living in Chicago since 1999, basically, right? But two years ago, I spent two months back in Chicago for the first time in years in my old neighborhood, which you know, has changed a lot because of the pro big real estate policies of the last 30 years of mayors of Chicago, starting with Daley, right? Which didn't just allow gentrification to happen, they artificially accelerated it through massive taxpayer subsidies to cronies in the real estate industry through using tools like no-bid contracts and things like that. So I was already, I mean, I knew this had been going on, but it was just shocking to, to be in my old neighborhood which used to be c- patrolled by the Simon City Royals and to see now it's being patrolled by very rich uh, people pushing $5,000 baby carriages and walking pedigreed dogs, you know, and with the average house going for $2 million. The house I grew up in, my dad bought it for 30000 in 1976. Um, but, you know, so I was already thinking about that. I was very happy to see that Brandon Johnson won the election. And I started thinking, well, how can I contribute something to this? And I just thought, well, uh, in my mind, everybody remembers the Harold Washington administration, but it's not true. Like, nobody in Chicago under the age of 50 probably even remembers it. And um, on top of that, a large swath of the Chicago population, especially on the north side now, isn't from Chicago, from the suburbs or from out of town, Michigan, whatever. So maybe it would be useful to write something about like what I remember from my dad's work as commissioner of economic development and then director of development for the city of Chicago in the Washington and Sawyer administrations with the idea of maybe giving some warnings and some remembrance of positive things from that government. And I first approached it in these times. They didn't answer my query, which was annoying because I worked for free there in 1995 for an entire year as an intern, unpaid intern. Um, but I know they're, you know, they're busy. Whatever. They get a lot of queries. They, I'm sure none of the staff there know who I am anymore. But right. I remember that. they may not so, even Harold Washington. <laughs> yeah, or or Weinstein. You know, uh, but but. I noticed that the new editor of the Chicago Reader is a friend of mine from Lumpen Magazine. You know, from- oh, yeah. you just so just Lumpen,
1: right? I like the Lumpen.
0: Yeah, well, I was, yeah, I was a, one of the main contributors for, for Lumpen for, for, I don't know, five or six years. There were, there were issues where I contributed five or six articles under different pseudonyms, just so it didn't look <laughs> like it was all me, right? right. And, uh, and so I got in touch with her on Facebook If I'd sent an email, obviously, to the reader, I'm sure it wouldn't have even been, probably wouldn't have even been answered because they get so many queries. But I messaged her and she was like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea, do it. It wasn't planned as a cover article, but then when she got it, she was like, oh, we're gonna put it on the cover. So I thought that was pretty cool. And that's how it it came about, basically.
1: Hey, Rob, how old were you when your dad worked for Harold? You just called me Rob which is pretty I, I mean Brian. How uh, old were you, Brian? I know, I know.
0: That's what happens when you, when you hook up with your, your dad's old friends, <laughs> especially if your dad has passed away, they often treat you as if you're your yeah, dad. It's like they're one. <laughs> and then you treat your dad's old friends like they're your dad. And it's this <laughs> confusing situation, okay? <laughs> but I was, uh, I was a sophomore at Gordon Tech when Washington won the election. You know, 82, I was a sophomore, I was like 15. How long did your dad live? He died in uh, nineteen ninety five, of Agent Orange related uh, cancer from his time in Vietnam. Uh huh. He doesn't. He's not around to say what happened, so I thought I should write the article. You
1: can say whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, that too. Tell us a little <laughs> bit about the article. What do you? What's your thesis? And uh, uh, what are some of the things that uh, our new mayor who we're liking a lot. Uh, ought to learn from your dad's uh, his old boss, Harold.
0: Okay. Well, first of all, you know the situation. The a lot of things in Chicago have changed dramatically since 1982. <clears throat> in 1982, Chicago had something like 240,000 factory jobs. At that moment, the Reagan administration was treating the massive transformation of the United States from industrial to service economy as if it was this kind of like laissez-faire thing. It was the, we couldn't get in the way of the invisible hand of the market, you know? And um, the Washington administration, especially my dad, they they took an approach of like, it might even be inevitable, but if we can keep factories open, even for an extra year or two, the economic effects on the city of Chicago are going to be very significant because the average factory job Industrial job pays so much more than a service economy job, as everyone knows. Everyone who's seen Roger and me knows that, right? Um, basically, um, now we're in a situation where Chicago only has 63,000 uh, manufacturing jobs. However, that's still very important for our economy. It moves billions and billions of dollars every year in the economy, and it's important. Uh, so, I I talked about a few things that the Washington administration did to keep uh, manufacturing jobs in the city, right? Um, And uh, I remember at the time my dad did a, you know, some of the things he talked about is like, okay, it is, uh, you do save money moving a factory overseas perhaps, but Chicago continues to have a lot of positive things for the manufacturing sector, mainly, it's the transportation hub of the United States, and so it's very convenient to have a factory in Chicago or in Greater Chicago because you're connected to the train lines, the trucking routes, you know, ship shipping even at the time, and uh, and that could be if you weigh the pros and cons, that could make it, you know, more interesting for some manufacturing plants to remain in the city of Chicago, and uh, what they started doing was threatening to sue and even suing companies that had received low interest loans from the city of Chicago or tax abatements in exchange for promising to expand their production or to stay in the city. And one case of that was the preschool factory on the west side. The preschool factory received a a big loan from the city of Chicago with almost zero interest, I think it was 1978, promising to generate like, I don't know, 2,200 new jobs. They never did it. And a couple years later, they they announced they were shutting down. So the city of Chicago successfully sued them, negotiating for them to stay open an extra year and provide all kinds of free job placement service for all of the workers it was laying off. And that was a precedent around the United States. It scared a lot of people in big business. People, the Reagan administration was worried that other cities might start copying that. You know, and it's one of the reasons that every single uh, initiative by the Washington administration, at least as I remember my dad told me this, was audited by the federal government. And so what I say in the article is like, well, the situation's different now. There's a Democrat in power. It's not the Reagan administration anymore. But I believe that the Johnson administration should still expect uh, you know, um, increased scrutiny at the federal level based on the way that the DNC is treating progressive Democrats these days. We look at how they stacked the deck against Bernie Sanders in the last presidential elections. We see how they destroyed the, you know, the candidacy of a progressive in Buffalo recently in that mayoral yeah. election. So I, I, I don't think the Johnson administration should expect a close relationship with the DNC at the national level. You know, their idea of a good mayor is like Ram Emanuel, <laughs> which is a joke, right? An absolute joke. I'm sure that the DNC People were rooting for Valls. You know, that's who they want. They want someone who'll continue ruining Chicago's school system, gutting all of the public schools, privatizing everything, increasing, um, transforming the city into an even worse surveillance police state, you know, in which there's a constant kind of harassment campaign going on against poor uh, youth, in the same way that there was uh, when you were young working with rising up angry and that kind of stuff that you saw firsthand in the 60s against the Rainbow Coalition and all of these other attempts to unify the youth, that's going on, it's, it's even worse now, right? It's worse. And so we can expect, I wouldn't expect, uh, for example, if I were running in Chicago, if I were Brandon Johnson, I wouldn't treat the DNC, the, you know, and the, the, pre- the federal government as friends. I would expect some kind of sabotage coming from them.
1: Well, that's a a different, uh, you know, I got to admit, I'm getting kind of soft and don't pay attention to things as uh, detailed as I might. So I kind of end up rooting for Democrats in general. But I think talking to you- Well, it's better than Republicans, right? I'm not saying that like- That's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. 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 I remember when, uh, during that time, the White Sox were threatening Mm -hmm. to pull out of town and move to Florida, I believe. Do you talk about that in your article at all? Because I think your dad was involved in keeping the socks here. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, what I say in the article is that um, the Johnson administration should expect to be blackmailed into financing big mega projects like what happened to the. At that time, it was already the Sawyer administration. It started during the Washington administration, but the Sawyer administration with like ripping down Comiskey Field and building a new stadium next door. Yeah. I mean that was that was a. That was not something that was supported by the Washington administration, but if they had let them move out of town, it, they would have been uh, completely destroyed by the media, right? right. So it, it's something that um, Pierre Clavel, who's a, uh, who wrote this book called "The Progressive City," he wrote an article w- which talked about like progressive governments in cities like Chicago, Oakland, Hartford, Connecticut, Boston, whatever. And he wrote this in the '80s. He wrote an article just saying that uh, progressives are always blackmailed into, into delivering these big development projects. Sometimes there's nothing you can do about it. The Washington administration was successful in blocking the World Fair coming to Chicago. If the World Fair had come to Chicago, taxpayers would still be paying the bill on a bunch of white elephant buildings, you know, that would probably end up abandoned, like uh, what happens in the Olympics around the world. You know, you see that um, most Olympic villages are now crack dens in places where they had the Olympics. You know, they're just like abandoned, full of um, homeless people and drug users, like in Greece, in, in Rio de Janeiro. And so they were happy to block that, but they had to give in to the Sox. And I know that there's a similar situation going on with the Bears right now. I mean, the Cubs tried to blackmail uh, Washington. They tried, I don't, blackmail, I'm using it loosely. I'm not accusing the Chicago Cubs of committing a felony or anything like that. But they they tried to pressure, there was all this, this um, big real estate companies were against lights coming into Wrigley Field, because they were afraid it would affect real estate values in a neighborhood that was rapidly gentrifying. And the way Washington dealt with that was genius. He said, okay, you can go. We'll rip down the stadium and build a public housing project. And then all the real estate people were like, no, no, let's have lights, let's have lights, it's okay. But you know, nobody likes lights, to their credit, my father and Timothy Evans negotiated a deal with the Cubs, which guaranteed that for like 15 to 20 years they had the lowest number of night games in baseball, right? which is a positive thing um,
1: you were, have you when you were here last, did you go by uh, Wrigley Field? I mean you wouldn't did, recognize it. I tried to
0: get get tickets, but it was impossible. you know uh, I guess they've they've kept some of some of the original structure and things right but the, the thing and is, know, the na- neighborhoods just all destroyed around now. Neighborhood, it like, it's, yeah, it's a joke. It used well, to be one of the most interesting neighborhoods in the country, right? I mean, it was like a, in the early 80s, it was like a Mexican, Korean, Jamaican neighborhood. It was really cool, you know, but now it's just like, it looks like a little uh, thing that uh, came out of a
1: dinosaur half an hour after eating Disney World. Hey, uh, Brian, let me ask you uh, do you, What's your take on your dad's politics? I mean, he fought in Vietnam. Uh, was he a, a progressive, a leftist? Had he been involved in any kind of radical groups, or did he just come to a kind of a good, progressive, forward-looking position through his life experience?
0: Uh, my dad, when he went to Vietnam, on um, he got a Navy scholarship. He grew up poor. He got a Navy scholarship to Notre Dame, got a civil engineering degree, and went to Vietnam. As a naval engineer, and was there during the Tet Offensive. He was evacuated. Uh, he used to travel around a river patrol boats on the Mekong River, visiting different construction sites where he was supervising, um, you know, uh, housing for Vietnamese Navy workers or whatever. But um, when he retur- by the time he returned from Vietnam, he had become a Marxist-Leninist, and he got very active in the anti-war movement. Right, and uh, so his politics were very left-wing in the 70s, I remember. And uh, you know, his, I used to see his book collection. He read Trotsky's History of the Russian Revolution, all of that stuff. I read that. But um, as he got more into community politics, teaching at UIC, he became much more pragmatic, right? Because it's one thing, if you wanna stay an academic the rest of your life, you can be, have as much leftist purity as you want. If you want to get anything done, you have to make compromises. You have to deal with people who might not—might even be conservatives or whatever. But if the goal is—if you have that goal in common, then you can move forwards on a lot of interesting things. And so I would say by the time he got into the Washington administration, he was a progressive. You know, he was like a left-leaning Democrat, obviously.
1: How did, how did your dad uh, meet Harold, and how did he hook up and end up in
0: that position? You, I, I mean, I don't know, you might know better than me from those days, but, or Katie at least, right? But from the way I remember it, uh, he founded University of Illinois-Chicago's Community Center for Economic Development, QED. I don't know if I'm saying it, uh, it right. Uh, and got involved in a lot of projects with uh, community organizations in Pilsen, you know, on the south side, in some working class neighborhoods on the north side, uptown, whatever. And so he had a lot of contacts with community organizers. And because of that, he became an asset for the Washington campaign. And he began uh, helping coordinate the campaign, the election campaign, with Kari Mo, you know? All right. She went on to be his assistant commissioner of economic development, and then she was the first chief of staff for Paul Wellstone. I mean, she was his only chief of staff until he died. Due to his role in the campaign, he got to know Harold. You know, And after Harold won, he said, Harold, why don't you make me commissioner of economic development? And uh, Washington said, why? And my dad stated his case, and it seemed like it was convincing enough because he hired him.
1: That's good. I'm glad he got hired. Let me ask you, uh, before we move on, let me ask you, are there any other lessons from Harold and Rob that you want to share?
0: Yeah, one of the big ones is that I know you remember those days, you know, the level of excitement and joy over Washington, you know, over the Chicago machine, losing control of the city government apparatus and the first African-American mayor in the history of an incredibly racist city, right? Um, It generated this, um, uh, how can I say it? Uh, This level of expectation was so high among his supporters that it would have been impossible to deliver on everything that they thought was gonna happen. You know, the mayor isn't a dictator in Chicago. We have a city council. And so it was really important to communicate to voters and supporters and non-voters and non-supporters what they were doing, you know, what they were able to do, what they couldn't do, why they couldn't do this, why they couldn't do that, what they were trying to do, uh, so that there wasn't this huge backlash against them. like happens when a lot of progressives are elected? I mean, there was a huge backlash against Obama, right? I mean, if you look at Obama, I wouldn't... I wouldn't consider Obama, I wouldn't put him in the same class as Washington. Obama was more conservative than Washington, he wasn't. Uh, but there was such a high level of hope for him when he took office. And the fact is, um, you can't deliver on a lot of that stuff. The president isn't a, isn't a dictator. You can't just pass a magic wand and, you know, we say we've got a public health system now. <laughs> you know, it's it's very complicated. and. Um, the Brandon Johnson administration, I know they're working on this, but it's more important than ever to focus on communications, especially with the speed with which disinformation can spread on social media networks, which are all controlled by right wing billionaires, which all you know uh, already uh, favor conservatives in their algorithms. you know uh, so I just think that I can't underestimate how important communicating with residents in the city of chicago is about these kinds of things
1: uh, i'm gonna ask, switch a little bit here brian and ask you um i'm gonna ask you some your personal situation you what kind of work you're doing i know you just moved it's a big country brazil you moved 1500 miles to the north um and uh what that's like and uh, then a little bit on what brazil what's going on down in brazil um we uh we know Lula won, we're really glad about that. You kept our listeners and viewers abreast as uh, the campaign went on. Um, so I'm curious to know about your situation as well as how things in Brazil are now that uh, Lula's been in for a while.
0: Well, I moved uh, from Sao Paulo, which is, has a population of about 25 million in its greater, greater area, to Recife, which is a kind of provincial city about the same size as Boston. In the northeast of the country, in the poorest, you know, it's the poorest region. It's a, a region that's famous for, um, you know, left wing uh, politics and thinkers like Paulo Freire and things like that. Because my wife got decided to go back to school. So we're up here. I'm working for Telesur as a reporter. Well, what's happened since Lula took office, as you know, there was an almost copycat of the January 6th capital invasion except it took place a week after Lula took office on January 8th, and it was much more organized by fascist factions within the business community, especially from the Amazon region, the, the loggers and the mining interests. And it, was, it wasn't just a bunch of people breaking into the government buildings. They coincided it with um, destruction of power lines across the country. Uh, they arrested someone trying to at all. Yeah, there was uh, there was someone arrested trying to plant a bomb in the airport on Christmas Eve, who's connected to Bolsonaro, and since then, there's been a congressional investigation going on and also federal police investigation. Uh, Bolsonaro has already been declared guilty uh, for campaign fraud, uh, campaign law violations because he held a one out he invited a hundred ambassadors from around the world. To the presidential palace and held this PowerPoint presentation for them, that was transmitted live on national public television, explaining why the electronic voting system was fraudulent, why the election was going to be robbed, without providing any uh, evidence for it. There was no evidence for it. You know, it's impossible to hack in, almost impossible to hack into the electronic system because each ballot box is not connected to any other ballot box. You'd have to do it one by one. You know, so it didn't. There's no evidence that it happened, but since he used the state apparatus, taxpayer money to hold this event, that was a violation of campaign law on many levels. So he's already been barred from running for office for eight years. uh, And the criminal case against him is continuing. It was the electoral court that ruled he's ineligible. And now they've arrested his top personal aide, Just today, they arrested the the chief of federal police because on election day, in 549 counties across the country, almost all of them places where Lula was leading in the polls by a wide margin, the federal highway police set up roadblocks to block poor people from the countryside to come into the cities and vote. Very similar tactic to what Jeb Bush did in Florida in 2000 when when the highway police were stopping black people, right? And so uh, he's just been arrested over that, the, the police chief. Bolsonaro's top uh, aide is in jail, you know, for they, they opened up his uh, cell, his smartphone, and found he had detailed plans on how to enact a coup d'etat. The plan was to create a state of chaos so that Lula would declare a national emergency, and that would temporarily turn control of the country over to the military, and the military would just be like, okay, well, we're going to hold new elections in six months, or something, right? But Lula was too smart to fall for that. He said, "No, we don't need the military." Anyway, that's what's going on. So I think that the U.S. has a lot to learn uh, in terms of, um, you know, speeding up the the cases against Trump, and going after. They've they've also cut off all of the financing for the far right. You know, they've they found out who was financing what, who was financing this and that, and they've. They've frozen bank accounts and things like that. They're doing a lot of things that the Democrats could learn from, I think, you know, to prevent Trump from being elected again at this point.
1: Brian, I'd like to ask you a little bit about uh, some of the, you know, the most recent news we're getting here in the States on Lula is that he called together a summit uh, around climate change. And I don't know if if you uh, have been following that, but if you could share a little bit about it's basically around the protection of the of the rainforest in Brazil and the other, I think there are five other countries that border uh, on the Amazon. And just this, this week, there's been a conference going on and some kind of commitment to reducing carbon emissions, et cetera, protecting the rainforest. Can you tell us anything about that?
0: Yes. Um, Jair Bolsonaro, Open season, he he gutted all of the regulatory agencies and the environmental protection agencies and the indigenous protection agencies, because a large part of the rainforest is indigenous reserves. And um, there's this massive increase in deforestation to the point where the cloud of smoke from burning Amazon rainforest fire traveled 2000 miles south to Sao Paulo and turned daytime into nighttime one day when I was there. And since, uh, you know, he opened uh, the Yanomami Reserve for illegal gold mining, and they came in and poisoned all the rivers. They've been um, committing genocide against the Yanomami people. And since he's taken office, he's made a priority of like stopping this from happening. Deforestation has gone down 42% since he's taken office, but there's still huge challenges because of the international supply chain, there's still Americans buying uh, illegally logged wood from the Amazon for furniture and things like that. Um, and, you know, um, uh, Cargill Corporation, American corporation built a giant grain sol- silo port in the middle of uh, Virgin Rainforest a couple years ago. When Bolsonaro took office, they, they doubled the size of another port on the edge of an area where a lot of deforestation is going because they use that deforested land to grow soy and, be- and produce beef, right? So it, it's a historic agreement that happened today. Eight countries that border on the Amazon agreed to police illegal deforestation and mining together across borders. And Lula is going to make a similar agreement for cooperation with the other two big rainforest countries in the world, which are the Congo and uh, Indonesia. And right. so, you know, it's positive, but uh, what really needs to happen is that northern countries like the United States have to start jailing and arresting people who are
1: who are financing this kind of stuff. This is good to know, and uh, we should start a campaign to jail some of those people. Let me ask you uh, one more question, uh, and that would be, is there anything going on in the South American countries that we should be aware of? I mean, they have a a better government and negotiations with guerrillas going on in Colombia. Uh, We don't get a lot of news. You have to search for it. Some of the things that you shared about uh, Bolsonaro and Lula are things we never heard on the mainstream news up here. What can you tell Mm -hmm. us to keep our eyes out for, our hearts open to, about what's going on in South America?
0: Well, uh, there's a coup attempt going on against uh, Gustavo Petro, the, the democratically elected president of Colombia and there's probably some U.S. involvement because they're using the same tactics they used to go after Lula of lawfare. There's also an ongoing coup attempt, you know, ongoing pressure campaign against the democratically elected government of Nicaragua. You know, the U.S. is the primary culprit. Ortega was reelected with 70% of the vote in legitimate elections. You know, they have the best women's rights uh, uh, in terms of equity and employment and, and school and university and things like that in Latin America, they're constantly smeared. Don't believe anything you hear about Nicaragua. No, it's, the it's US unbelievable
1: US. to smear. You know, all we heard about was you know, his uh, uh, alignment with the, the church, you know, and the questions of abortion. And it's been real negative about it, the Nicaragua. It's
0: ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Just remember the 80s. I mean, <laughs> why? remember what the U.S. did to Nicaragua in the 80s. They don't. They don't want Nicaragua to build an alternative to the Panama Canal, you know, and China's offering to help <laughs> them do that right now. So there's there, there's another coup in the workings, another coup attempt.
1: Brian Mayer, you're a great guest. You got a lot of information. You got uh, any parting words you'd like to share with the uh, Live From the Heartland viewers and listeners?
0: Yeah, Michael, I think you have a lot to teach young people about political organizing with unemployed youth. In, in working-class youth, and that could be important internationally, because too many people write those those people off as a force for positive political change. And your work in that area was really important with rising
1: up, angry in the
0: '60s. And you know that's some knowledge people need to learn from you about.
1: Well, uh, bringing it all back to uh, the youth, uh, you know, it used to be the youth movement. Now I'm in my 80s, so I'm lo- I'm looking yeah. to. Uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. But uh, you know, this started out between uh, an article you wrote, "Lessons from Harold and Rob," about your uh, your dad working for Harold Washington, and lessons that our new uh, mayor Brandon Johnson could learn. One of the things that I saw were uh, the figures of how the young people turned out for Brandon. I mean, they really that that's important. Not, yeah, that was what happened.
0: Exactly. You know, that's that kind of stuff is a they're an important demographic. Uh, and, you know, there's war being waged against them in a lot of big
1: cities. Well, it'll be a challenge for Americans. Yeah. for how I get more people listening to the show, but we're working on it. I want to thank you once again, and I can't wait till like, I come down there and visit you. Uh, hopefully I'm not in a wheelchair. I'm still walking, swimming, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, you, you're great, a inform- lot of information from you, brother, and I greatly appreciate it. Well, you're always welcome down here. Good to know. <laughs> All right, brother, we'll see you. Keep me posted the next time you wanna come on or I'll contact you, either way. You could be a regular mm-hmm. on the Live from the Heartland show, as you are. Yeah, well, anytime. All right, everybody, later, we'll be right back with more Live from the Heartland here on the left end of your dials, don't go anywhere. We've got Russ Bradbird coming up, giving us a little bit of information about his newest book and we'll see what else he has to talk about. Be right back with more Live from the Heartland. the week of August 13th. Uh, we are recording this on the 9th of August, and um, my friend Russ Bradford, who's been a longtime contributor to the show, many of you out there listening or viewing know uh, that he is an author, a bas- former basketball coach, a basketball announcer. He uh, played at Von Steuben High School. He's out of the South Shore originally, and uh, he uh, went on to North Park College. They had a championship team. He ended up coaching at University of Texas El Paso. Then a little bit later at New Mexico State, where he is now a professor of English, I believe, and uh, he is the author of a number of books. Most recently, All the Dreams We've Dreamed, uh, the saga of Sean Harrington, uh, the Marshall coach who was wounded in a drive-by shooting. Uh, Russ, it's great to see you again. It hasn't been too long since we ran into each other. Actually, I'll tell the viewers, the listeners. You were on the front porch this morning, and I, I love the
2: I love the front porch. It's sort of the center of the universe in, in uh, Rogers Park anymore with the, with the closing of the of the Heartland Cafe.
1: You took a ride by the Heartland, I understand, on your bike on your way home.
2: It wasn't as it wasn't as depressing and ugly as I thought it was going <laughs> to be, but uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll change my tune at some point.
1: Yeah, well, we you know, if I win the lottery I, and an old man, I'd help open a new place. But right now. Uh, we're doing some writing, and you are a writer. And uh, you've been over in uh, Ireland with your family uh, for a little bit, working on your latest book, In the Works. And it's uh, basically about uh, migrants, immigrants, uh, asylum seekers, whatever they're called over there, who are learning to play Gaelic football, et cetera.
2: Fill us in. Well, the, during the—I I got very—I went over on a, a Fulbright Fellowship a year ago, I, I got very interested in this phenomenon in the age of Brexit. You know, your, your listeners and viewers would know this, but that Brexit was, uh, you know, the uh, United Kingdom leaving the European Union, and much of it seemed very obviously fueled by anti immigrant sentiment. And Northern Ireland is just 4% of the UK's population, but they get 21% of the immigrants. It's, it, the people in Belfast seem to love it. I'm sure what the Brits think is that, that it's a dumping ground. Um, but in the midst of this anti-immigrant sentiment, there's been an influx of Syrian refugees, Sudanese refugees, and lately, in the last year, of course, uh, uh, Ukrainian refugees. And so, um, but there's a strange phenomenon going on. There's a traditional Irish sport called Gaelic football and one called hurling. And they're complicated to explain except for that, but they're long-time traditional Irish sports. They're hardly played anywhere else in the world, although there is Gaelic Park in Chicago where it gets played. Um, But it's, of course, the epicenter is Ireland, and it's a traditional Irish sport. But what's happening now is that the immigrant children are getting funneled into these Gaelic sports. You know, the mom and dad moved there from a troubled area and they think I've got to do something with my kids and, and Gaelic football and hurling has been very welcoming to children. So the example I use maybe, Michael, is if, you know, if, say for example, if your grandfather came over from Germany in, in 1950 or whatever, that he would, you know, he would, maybe he didn't grow up playing baseball, but he'd stick you as a, as a new American kid, he would stick you into the Little League program. So I found this phenomenon that the, 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 these people are fl- fleeing this terrible violence, the Syrians and the Ukrainians and the Sudanese. But not. it's not just that they're fleeing the violence, but the men running these Gaelic football clubs often have th- this violence in their rearview mirror because either they participated or were affected by the violence uh, due to the troubles, which was, you know, which the Good Friday Agreement— uh, ended in 1998, and so many of the people involved in Gaelic sports have compli- like everyone in Belfast has a complicated background, and it's a little bit like the in, in a similar to what I found out when writing about Sean Harrington in All the Dreams We've Dreamed. Just any time I interviewed somebody on the West Side, they had been affected badly affected by gun violence. If it wasn't a good friend or a neighbor, it was a cousin or a guy across the street, and it's uh, so we have a whole generation of traumatized. Well, in Belfast, there's a whole generation of older people, particularly older men, that have been traumatized. But now they're the ones welcoming in the immigrants, from, particularly from Syria and the Ukraine.
1: Well, that's good. That's a good rundown. And uh, you as an author, uh, you, you know, you, you've cranked out some really nice books. And I'm glad that I got to be a part of uh, your patty on the hardwood and take some pictures for you. Uh, I always look forward to reading whatever you write. Uh, what are you reading, though? Uh, why don't we turn this into a a little bit of a book <laughs> review session, and with Russ Bradford
2: being the commentator? Well, I'm I'm very interested in in uh, I'm very interested in, in you know I I know. A lot more about Ireland than most Americans, but I still got a long, very long way to go. And so I, I've been reading the nonfiction books of a man named Miles Duncan. It's it's uh, it's like Duncan but with a G instead. My and Miles is M Y L E S. He's a Irish historian that's often writing about the. Sort of the crossover between America and and Ireland. So I'm, I got very interested in in Irish history through this Miles Dungan. I, I was always vaguely interested, but Miles really brings it to life. Um, and then I'm reading my maybe my favorite journalist in uh, in Northern Ireland is a man named Malachi Doherty, who's written a, a dozen or more books, uh, but he's also a columnist, and he he's sort of He's both loved and reviled. He's a little like Mike Royko, where it's hard not to stay. It's hard not to get mad at him, but I think (laughs) he's really. I think he's really brilliant, and he. So his new book is called "How to Fix Northern Ireland," which is a complicated and nuanced view. But he's been. He's become a good friend. You know, his wife is a poet, Maureen Maureen Boyle, who's one of the top poets in in Northern Ireland. So it fits in well with our family. With you know, my wife Connie Voisin being a, a noted poet here in America. And then, and then as far as fiction, I loved a book called Trespasses by Louise Kennedy. And that got re- re-released in, in America. It was originally published in Ireland, but it's a, a novel set in uh, Belfast in maybe the 1980s, I guess. And then, And then also going down to the Republic, you know, of course, we know that Northern Ireland is not technically part of Ireland, although it might be, someday in our lifetimes, but uh, then from the, you know, the Republic, from the free state down in the South, there's a, a a writer who will be no surprise to your listeners who read books, Claire Keegan. I think it's just really brilliant, and I'd say Claire Keegan, she might be 50 years old, of course, she's still writing today, but her short story, which she called Foster, won the Academy Award as a... Uh, feature film for Irish language, for, for foreign language films. It's in Irish, you know, what which, which we sometimes call Gaelic, but is really incorrect. It's Irish. And uh, she won the, the her film or the film based on her short story is called The Quiet Girl. And it's a, it's a really, it's a brilliant film and the book is even better. And when I say the book, it's only 90 pages. It's an easy read. So I, I love Clara Keegan and the other, uh, uh, long, short story that I read. It's a novella, I suppose. It's called uh, Small Things Like These, which is a novel sort of based loosely on what happened with the Magdalene sisters. They were the crew that if you got if you were a young girl and got pregnant in Ireland <clears throat> until fairly recently, they stuck you off with the Magdalene sisters. You had the baby and they took the baby, put it up for adoption, and you got stuck working in a laundry for the rest of your life. And so it was, you know, uh, Sinead O'Connor who just died was a uh, was a was a had been. Uh, I don't know if she had a baby out of wedlock, so to speak, but I think that she got put in for being a troublemaker. You could get put in for being a troublemaker. Of course, we know Sinead O'Connor is one of the world's great troublemakers. He was. <laughs> and by the way, you know, of course, I was I was living in Belfast when Sinead O'Connor died, and you know, it was just really dominant. I mean, it was like it would have been like Elvis dying here or that kind of thing. It was really dominated the media for a couple of days and. You know, she was a really gutsy and courageous. She gave up commercial success to stand up for what she believed in. And, you know, I would imagine most of the listeners of your show would be, uh, you know, down with that. Let me ask you a little bit about Tormic McCarthy, who
1: uh, was living in El Paso. And I know when I first came to El Paso, you took me by his house. And I want to know if you ever met him, but do you have anything you want to share about him? Talk about some gruesome stuff.
2: Well, uh, he was his writing was gruesome. I don't think he was personally gruesome, but no, I meant his writing. McCarthy left El Paso I think in the early 1990s or maybe mid 1990s to go live in Santa Fe. He got married again and had a son, but but he lived very. I only lived a few hundred yards away from him when I lived in El Paso, and uh, but it was I never met him, and it was known even though I I loved his books by the early 90s was was sort of very indominate he was my favorite writer for a long time and he's still right up there at the at the top but um it was known everyone in el paso knew that you don't go ring his doorbell and try and talk to him that he was extremely private and that he didn't want to be bothered and uh, so i never uh, not that i probably would have been afraid to do it anyway but you uh, like a lot of writers i would have liked to have met him but never did but i know people who know him and and uh, he he seemed to he got somehow tied in with a, a lefty lawyer in El Paso named Malcolm McGregor, who'd been one of the only progressives in the Texas Senate at one back in the 1960s. He sort of got tied in with, although I don't think Cormac would have been hard to pin down politically. I think, you know, that that uh, um I, I won't say any more about it because I think it's sort of I, I don't want to talk like I knew him, but. uh but yeah, I know people that knew him, and the and the word with them was, oh no, you could talk to him, and he was, talking, but he didn't want to talk about his own books. And if he thought that you were sort of wanting, if you wanted something from him, that he would sort of he had he would sort of run the other way. And if you if he got recognized in the bookstore, he went to the bookstores every month, I guess, and picked out books and bought them. But if you got recognized, he just hightailed it and left. And so uh, he would actually come to the bookstore in Mesilla, New Mexico. And I, I, I know the lady who owns the place and one of my students was working there and she said the same thing, that he was friendly and he'd buy the books and he'd ask for recommendations and if people said, oh, aren't you Cormac McCarthy? He was, he was out the door. But I think, he's, I think he's a brilliant, brilliant writer and he, you know, he dip, it depicts a pretty gruesome or difficult part of American history. And my favorite books, I love the, the, the trilogy, particularly the first two, All the Pretty Horses and The Crossing.
1: Yeah, I remember reading those. Blood Meridian was a rough one to read for me.
2: Um, yeah, it's a brilliant book, but it's it's extremely violent. Uh, Russ,
1: I know you're uh, you're packing, you're getting ready. You 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 came back from Ireland. You visited uh, your family in Philadelphia. You're here in Chicago for another day. You're leaving with your family, driving back to Las Cruces and El Paso. Um, let me just ask you, do you have anything rumbling around in that wonderful brain of yours about what book you're going to do after this next one comes out? I mean, you must have some plans and things uh, you're well, thinking about.
2: I don't, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. You know, it seems like each time that I've written a nonfiction book, the, sort of, the story sort of stumbles into my lap. You know, Nolan Richards in, showed up at Basketball in the Barrio, and I thought somebody should write a book about it because everyone is blaming him. And calling it reverse racism, and that what, went, about Arkansas when he was coaching in Arkansas? Yeah, you know, when he got fired, he, he pretty universally got blamed by just every single media source I read, and I mean there were dozens of them that said he deserved to get fired and and it was his own fault, and that he's seeing racism where there wasn't racism. I, I wanted to undercut that story and get get a, a sort of a more accurate and complicated. And and I should probably say that Nolan Richardson's not a hundred percent happy with the book. There's parts of the book. That even today he disagrees with, but it seems like the the nonfiction st- stuff just has fallen in my lap. So I don't want. It's hard to predict what will fall in my lap. I do have a a, a novel that if, if there's any publishers listening, I do have. A, and of I course, if, if if I do have a novel, a, a satire that I think is pretty good that I'm that I'm looking for a home for, and and then but then you know, and, and I think I'm going to try and get an Irish publisher for this this uh, Gaelic, the Syrian refugees playing Gaelic football book. I just seems like it's more, I just think it's a nuanced enough story. And I, I hate to say this, I just don't know if the American audience is smart enough. Not that I'm that brilliant, but I don't know if, if I have to explain the troubles in Northern Ireland and Brexit and what's going on in Syria and what's going on in the Ukraine and how Gaelic football works, it might be too much for an American. Yet, a, a book that I really admired was, uh, there's a book called Outcast United. About these refugee kids playing on the same soccer team in rural Georgia, and uh-huh. I really—I think the author's Warren St. John, and I thought that was a really good book. Uh, and and so in some ways, but actually, Mike, the real model—maybe I talked about this last time. Forgive me, but you know, Alex Kotlowitz is—is is, I've met Alex. Is, I wouldn't say I, I wish I could call him a friend, but he, he's a—he's a friendly acquaintance, and I really admired his his last book is called *An American Summer*, and uh, it's about gun violence in Chicago but he he traces the gun violence in seven or eight different stories. And that, you know, that if you go into it thinking there's one hero to root for, so he's able to do that. And I think for my book in in Belfast, there's not any one person who's the hero of the book. It's just I'm trying to get across a larger picture. So I'm a big admirer of Alex Kotlowitz. And I'm hoping that if if I was a tenth of the writer Alex Kotlowitz was and could capture Belfast and this strange moment of Brexit and Syrians and Gaelic football, I'll, I'll be happy.
1: Well, Russ Bradford, I, uh, I'm thinking of more things to ask you, but we're, we want to have you back on, and I know you got to get ready. I want to uh, say I'm glad that you're my friend, and uh, you impart a lot of great information for uh, people everywhere. Uh, and I hope that that book that you, uh, that secret novel that you have, which I believe has to do with athletic departments having a lot of power taking over universities,
2: um, yeah, it's, it's a satire, but, a, you, you know, which I think hits home with Northwestern and everybody else, but it's, you know, it's harder to get fiction published, and I'm really focused on this uh, nonfiction project now.
1: All right, well, safe travels to you and to Connie and Alma. I love All your brother, thanks, and thanks a lot.
2: God bless the Heartland Cafe, and thanks to Katie, and, and, uh, and thank, tell Paige thank you for that lovely uh, tomato sandwich okay brother we'll see you thank
1: you everybody out there uh we want to thank you for having tuned in or uh to live from the heartland for the week of the 13th of august year 2023 uh we'll be back next week both on radio on uh can tv on the internet and i'm not sure who our guests are yet but i want to do thank uh, all the people who make this show possible particularly hal james our engineer and editor (laughs) need a good editor Uh, I want to thank Katie Hogan and Tom Clark, who've been a part of this show for a long time. And I want to thank our two guests, Brian Meir down in Brazil, always full of information, and Russ Bradbird, one of the most insightful people I know, uh, and a hell of a writer, too. So you all have a good week, and uh, do what Athletes United for Peace encourage you to do. Do sports, not war. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Over and out.
3: Big blue sky, you got a dream awaiting. I can see it in your eye. It may not come easy, but you know you've got a friend. I'll be by your side the entire ride. Just let me hear you say amen. Are you doing doing? Are you doing the best you can? Mm-hmm. Tell me are you doing? you can. Mm-hmm. To done, est-ce que tu donnes, le meilleur de toi-même, parce que tu l'aimes. To done, est-ce que tu donnes, le meilleur de toi-même. you can <laughs> tell me are you doing